Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I am a 30-year Wall Street veteran who's had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide you with my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I disguise my voice and they'll never know. This week, I look at the July 23rd, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. Uh, but before we get to that, a couple of caveats. Uh, first, this show is for entertainment purposes only, and uh, uh, that's not a guarantee. Secondly, I have many conflicts of interest. Mainly, I may be recommending stocks I'm actually selling, or I may be buying stocks, I'm recommending that you sell. Um, and finally, I, uh, or not finally, but somewhere in the middle anyway, I, I'm probably completely uninformed. I'm just paging through Value Line after work, and, uh, you know, I've actually done a little less work this week than I was hoping to, so what have you, we'll get through it. And then uh, my last caveat is I might be uh, drinking. It's after work just a hobby, etc. See all my caveats at www.thevalueguys.com. Also, uh, at that site, you'll see a Val's Best Ideas list, and there's about four years of ideas in there that are, uh, you know, a, a pretty good reflection of the sorts of things we talk about on this show, um, which are uh, generally, uh, you know, value stocks that are, happen to be in this week's value line. Uh, and so um, now I should apologize because um, uh, I've been, uh, oops, let's see. I'm just, I'm recording the show on my phone. Um, and I missed last week, so I'm, you know, sorry. Th things have been very hectic for me in 2010. Um, I've been doing traveling, I moved, I've been commuting a bit. Uh, lately, I've been in this ferocious, uh, it should be a happy time because uh, my firm and another firm are sort of, you know, engaging in a joint, you know, project. But um, there's legal and lawyers and, you know, five principals can sit in a room and decide something. But then four months later, you're just, you've had dozens of hours of conversations with lawyers and you just you know we're investors so uh it's crazy uh anyway i don't want to bore you with all that so i've just been a bit too busy to do the show i apologize um <clears throat> now for those of you who aren't regular listeners um uh, i try to do a little um uh, i try to do three stocks each week that would make you know pretty decent value names um but, you know, you got to do your own work. I'm just looking in value line. And then I usually start with a little rant that I call, uh, it would help my portfolio if. So let's start with that, shall we? Um, I was reading the news the other day, a couple days ago, yesterday, I don't know. And I'll just say, it would help my portfolio if Washington bureaucrats would take an economics course. That'd be great just a basic one, macroeconomics and microeconomics, so they would understand 
the impact of their policies. I don't think that's too much to ask when they have the biggest budget in the world in front of them and they ask so much of others uh, and the you know the regulations that the private sector has to live with and the rules and all that when they themselves um, you know have have so far to go um, in understanding you know the rules of the road and so here's my rant this week it would help my portfolio if it would help my portfolio if the Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner would understand a little bit about basic economics in the sense of where growth comes from in the economy because he was quoted and I just read this in the LA Times I don't know where he was or who else picked up the story but he was quoted saying that the expiration of the tax cuts which is really um, you know at the end of 2010 the tax rates by there's a law that at the end of 2010 all the tax rates for almost every income bracket go up a lot and uh, it hasn't been lost on people when you go and study the Great Depression that raising taxes on everybody in I think 1936 maybe because people wanted to punish the rich and punish business for getting them into this mess so the taxes were raised and the economy took another giant leg down and so the lesson which I think Ben Bernanke understands is one of the leading authorities on the causes uh, of the Great Depression but Tim Geithner and I'm sure his other team members there um, don't seem to be students of that because he made the statement that the expiration of these tax cuts or the coming tax increases will not affect, affect the outcome of the recovery or of job growth which um, you know is just unbelievably crazy because um, well a little further there is some talk about retaining the lower tax rates on the middle class which is people individuals who make less than two hundred thousand dollars a year or families that make less than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year that's the middle class even though I would point out if you go and look this up in the uh, statistical abstract of the United States you'd find that in that two hundred to two fifty range you are in the top I think it's five or ten percent of income so that's not the middle class that's still the high end but for whatever reason um, the view is is that if the tax rates on incomes above that go up it will not have an impact on job growth and here's why I believe that's crazy just ask yourself do you know anyone who makes less than two hundred thousand or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year anyone who makes less or a business that makes less that's hiring or that is apt to hire in other words when you go and read the statistics on who's hiring um, you know the big companies of course are hiring but the vast majority of new job growth comes from small business but either way um, you know if you raise taxes on people then the best talent is going to cost more because there's still competition for the best people so they're uh, going to get bid up higher 
and uh, ultimately it's going to um, you know get passed through to consumers and all that these tax rates but in the short term what it I think does is it freezes any plans for investment in people for sure and I think when you look at the rapidly growing productivity numbers when you come into a downturn like this it seems counterintuitive but productivity soars as you start to come out of these recessions because people just try to avoid hiring anyone until they're sure that the recovery is sustainable now in this case not only do you have the typical waiting to make sure if the recovery is sustainable but you throw into that and I've talked about this at length on the show a giant dose of uncertainty about what the returns are going to be on the capital that you invest or what the ultimate costs of labor are going to be on the people that you hire and you have every reason in the world to just wait and see how things come out it's sort of like if the capitalists go on strike uh, not because they want to but because they don't know what their returns are and uncertainty is the worst thing in the world for stable capital it, it, it's it's like anti-magnetism and so it just sits on the sidelines and waits for clearer policies out of Washington so uh, it would help my portfolio if Tim Geithner would read a book about what the income levels are of people who hire other people and I think he would find that over any period that he would like to examine anywhere in the world that the jobs are created by people and entity that are in the top five percent of income and so um, I think where I would differ is that I think it will dramatically impact uh, the outcome of this recovery or the upward slope of the recovery um, you know the it'll dramatically affect the outcome um, what these tax rates are uh, you know end up being and so it would help my portfolio if um, they would not raise the tax rates so there you go um, sorry if that got long-winded I just you know you read that from the Treasury Secretary and you just can't believe your ears and yet people print this and people believe it and it's unbelievable to me but whatever uh, okay three ideas this week I'm gonna go kinda quick it's late at night I know I've been late with shows um, you know the market's been uh, well super volatile uh, this VIX index that people look at it's not anywhere near the highs from a couple years ago but other than that particular period uh, it is at levels much higher than it ever traditionally was at until a few years ago so this point of this inflection of uncertainty is I think in part what causes the volatility and I talked about the free surface effect a few weeks ago little changes in perception here uh, affect valuations in a big way because there's a cascade a cascading effect uh, at a period of maximum uncertainty if you start to lean one way in your beliefs and with in terms of outcomes or cash flows ultimately and with interest rates so low so your discount rates in this environment are so low uh, the dollar you get 10 years from now has some meaningful value today whereas in a high inflation environment the dollar you get 10 years from now you know inflates away to zero by now so um, 
it's a bad period to have uncertainty with regard to attracting capital into labor and equipment, and yet it, apparently that's what the administration is willing to do. So, you know, buckle up. I'd say um, if you have concerns about that, then you know you certainly don't have to buy stocks right now. Um, my own belief is that elections take care of a lot and that uh, Americans like to make money and they like to be unfettered. And so I think, you know, there seems to be some sort of groundswell of recognition that, uh, you know, hey, buddy, I'm just trying to make a buck. Stop bothering me sort of thing. And if that happens, then I think stocks are looking pretty cheap right now. All right, three ideas today for you. Um, not in page number order because um, I abandoned that a while ago uh, with popular demand. So um, first up, ITT Corp, ticker ITT. Um, this company is a diversified manufacturer serving a variety of industries in three business segments, defense, Fluid technology, defense is 58%, fluid technology 30 and uh, motion and flow control 12 Okay, what I'm first attracted to, just looking at the cross the top of value line, is the valuation. It's 11 times earnings. Um, it pays a little yield, 2%, but these days, you know, the bank doesn't pay you that much. And I do a quick uh, enterprise value to EBITDA valuation, looking at enterprise value as the market cap or share price times shares and value line calculates that at 8.7 billion and I'm not going to argue with them because I don't have a calculator here so 8.7 plus the debt and these guys have a billion six in debt uh, that's 10 percent of capital so that's uh, that you know is uh, very affordable for them interest is covered nine times which um, you know could be higher but on the other hand they have a very stable operating margin so while the coverage is not sky high, um, it's very stable at that nine times over history. So I like that. Um, so market cap plus debt, 8.7 billion market cap to debt, 1.6. That gives me, uh, what, 10.3. And then I'm going to subtract the cash, which is 900. So I'm at uh, 9.4 billion in enterprise value. The operating er earnings here in Value Line, we know from past issues and analysts of their, you know, magazine describing the definitions here, but we know that the operating margin times sales is a pretty good approximation of EBITDA. So I've got uh, 11 billion in sales, 14% operating margin. I'm going to just round that and say that's a billion five into 9.5 billion in enterprise value, and that's about six six times 6.3 or something like that times and so for me I'm gonna look at the inverse of that as a return in the sense if I paid 9.5 billion to own all the cash flow here and I got a billion five uh, in cash flow back that's gonna be um, you know what a 16 percent return um, something like that, which is pretty good. 16% cash return on the cash I invest. And then you're going to get a little growth here, undoubtedly. In their industries, defense is pretty stable. Fluid technology, to the extent that that's water and treatment, waste treatment, which it is, you know, that's going to grow with GDP and population. And it's also high up on Maslow's hierarchy. So wealthy nations 
and increasingly wealthy nations in a wealthier world are going to spend more on those kinds of things. And when I see three divisions, I'm also thinking, you know, either uh, you got something to sell or, you know, you have an opportunity to get economies of scale if you buy in one of the areas that you're in. So it gives you some options. Um, value line says they're going to grow at 7%. You know, I have no idea how accurate that is. And it could change if they buy or sell, you know, some some different uh, companies. Um, and so, uh, you know, but if I add it up, I got a 16% return cash on cash, 7% earnings growth. I'm in the low 20s, and I like that. Now, someone asked me, one of the, a listener wrote in and said, okay, well, what's a good sell target? What would you target? And in this simple sort of enterprise value to EBITDA approach, it's it's pretty easy. Uh, so let's take your um, EBITDA over enterprise value as a cash yield. So if we bought the company with cash, we'd get a yield on that. And it's pre-tax, but just let's work with me. I mean, the yields at the bank or on a bond, it's all pre-tax, unless you're in a foundation or an IRA or something. But most of the marketplace, I think, is taxable. So let's just work with that. Um, if I can add up a 16% cash return and a 7% growth rate, that gives me, let's say, a 23% return. If I own that, I'm going to probably own that until I get toward a 15% return. And what I mean by that is as the enterprise value rises, either due to uh, you know them, uh, well, probably going up in share price would be, you know, the the easiest way. And um, as their EBITDA, let's say, rises more slowly, so the marketplace is recognizing the valuation is undervalued, it drives up the stock price, so your enterprise value goes up, your EBITDA, you know, it goes up, but maybe it doesn't go up as much. Um, and uh, And so your yield, which is the inverse of that, it's going to come down. If the enterprise value in this one goes from $9.5 billion to, you know, just say it's a double so I don't have to do any math, $19 billion. Well, my yield is going to go from 16% to 8%, and uh, my growth might still stay 7 You know, I don't know. Maybe it would go up some because with higher stock prices I can do accretive acquisitions and you know make the spread so undoubtedly if my PE goes up my growth rate goes up in that sense but um, you know if I don't take that into account and I won't I'm at a 8% yield plus you know 7% growth that's 15% and that's where I would start to sell the stock and the reason I would do that is that I know the long-term return on the S&P 500 is around 9 or 10 percent. You know, a few years ago in 07 when we had that long bull market, it got up towards 10. Um, and I think in this environment, you know, it's maybe back toward 9. It's it's in that range. So I know that if I have a 10 percent expected return on a stock, I'm not doing myself any favors by owning that stock. I've got the same expected return as the market and a lot more risk because that particular stock could go to zero in a way the market probably can't. So um, so I, I certainly don't want to own a stock at 10%. Even in a portfolio of many stocks, it's not additive particularly. 
at uh, a market rate of return unless you know maybe it's vastly less risky than the market which is hard but it could be something like a utility or a monopoly where I might view it actually even though it's not diversified as less risky than the market but that would be very rare so I know at 10 I don't want to own it I'm not a, and certainly if I have a client I'm not adding any value to that guy by owning a stock that I think can earn 10%, he could go buy the market himself and not pay me. So I feel, you know, also morally that I shouldn't own a stock with a 10% return, at least for a client. So in order to make sure I don't own it at 10%, I've got to start selling it at 5%. Not only that, but if I think I have a 15% return on a stock, I've got to take into account the likelihood, the very high likelihood, that I'm wrong and I'm too high. So I end up having to have a bell curve, a probability distribution around all my estimates whenever I make an assumption about a return. So I need to start selling and buying, you know, with assumptions about big errors, not only in my assumptions for the cash flows of the company, but perhaps also then my assumptions for uh, growth rates and, you know, earnings multiples and things like that. So any case, ITT, I'd buy it right here, and uh, I guess my target price would be, uh, which I don't usually do on the show, but now I'm all target priced up based on this conversation, but, you know, I need a, I need a calculator. Uh, let's see, if I did the 18.5, um, and I'm going to, uh, let's see, I guess it would be, around 65 something like that so ITT Corp ticker ITT okay next up uh, Lincoln Electric ticker oops sorry my phone just turned off I'm just punching in my password here um, Lincoln Electric ticker LECO and again what I'm tra attracted to here is um, not so much the valuation, which on the surface doesn't look that cheap. When you look across the top, it's 19 times earnings, 24% premium to the market PE, which I don't tend to like. But when I look at their business, it's a very long period of double-digit returns on capital, uh, good, consistent operating margins. Um, you know, historically, uh, the stock does sell a lot cheaper on uh, PE so you might think it's expensive at a premium or at closer look you might say hey wait a minute um, these guys are on depressed earnings and in fact you know for 2010 the market thinks they're gonna earn 270 a share their peak number was 530 a share in 08 so when you see a premium PE above the market you gotta look again and say well is that a premium PE or is it a discount PE on the earnings that people hope they might earn in a couple of years if they simply recapture their operating margin now you know one of the calculations you have here and I don't have a calculator but in 08 um, when they had their peak earnings they did 2.5 billion in sales this year they're gonna do 1.9 billion so they lost 500 million in sales and value line doesn't do me the courtesy of having a gross margin so I don't actually know what the gross income loss on that is the reason that would be important is 
that's the leverage you have on your operating expenses. So I don't know, you know when I see an operating margin going from 15% then to 13% now, um, you know, I guess I, I have to assume maybe the gross margin was flat on the way down, although that's probably not true because you have some fixed expenses and depreciation and things. So it's not entirely clear, but, you know, it's pretty easy to understand that if you lose $500 million in sales and you had a 15% operating margin, that's probably, uh, you know, maybe 20% or 30% of that loss uh, sales is lost profit just because of the economies of scale. So they might have lost 150 million or so out of profit. They've cut costs a lot. You know, when you get into these periods, again, the productivity rises because you figure out ways to do more with less people. Um, and, you know, machines um, that uh, can be well maintained are, are great productivity tools. But what I like even further about this versus the stable numbers and all that is simply when you look at their business, it's uh, they're one of the leading welders uh, in America. And, and, you know, what they do is they weld on giant facilities and they help maintain them. So um, let's see. I, it doesn't give the number here in terms of what percent of their business is spent in maintenance projects versus new equipment projects of competitors clearly with the big drop that they've seen in business some of that could be new orders lost where they have to come in and do some work I think a lot of that could be deferred maintenance as well uh, those were peak oil price years as well and uh, you know I think a lot of what they do is in the oil and gas business um, it doesn't say that here, so that may not be right. I own this stock, um, and I have owned it for a while, and I've talked about it on the show for a while. Um, it was founded in 1895, so, you know, whatever they do, they do it pretty well. The balance sheet is great. They've got uh, 7% debt to capital. Their interest coverage is 25 times, and since their operating margin almost never goes below 10%, it's perfectly well covered, and it always has been. They've got 400 million in cash on 43 million shares, so just under $10 a share, which is nice. And I think uh, one reason they get penalized in the PE is because they do carry so much cash, which on a book value basis is about 25% of their book value per share, so they get a little bit penalized in their return on equity because of all that cash. Um, they have a hundred million in total debt, nearly four hundred million in total cash. So I like that. Um, enterprise value to EBITDA on this one, you got a billion nine in enterprise value, roughly three hundred million in EBITDA on clearly depressed numbers. So that's six times. That's a sixteen percent cash on cash return. Value line says my next four years are going to see you know one percent growth in earnings. And if, that, if I totally bought that, that would mean I'm at a 16% cash-on-cash cash return and a 1% growth rate, which would give me a 17% return. And that'd probably be too low for me to buy. Um, the reason I own it is I don't buy that 1%. These guys, um, you know, have, I think, a lot of, if it's not monopoly, it's oligopoly type of pricing power. They don't abuse it. 
but I think they're in a position to consistently return mid to upper teens returns on capital without a lot of debt. And the only reason they're impaired now is that they got whacked with this uh, unprecedented, you know, clobbering in total revenue, which, uh, you know, impacted their um, optimal economies of scale. And so right now they're having to retrench a little bit and reduce capacity and, you know, in effect to operate more efficiently at lower sales volumes. And I have no doubt they'll be able to do that. It's just going to take a couple of years. And then they'll get back to some kind of growth rate. The economy will be kicking in. And I think the stock, you know, is a 20, 25% returner over time. Lincoln Electric, ticker L-E-C-O. Um, it occurs to me I didn't tell you anything about what's going on now. And this is according to Value Line. The outlook is brightening. Uh, they're benefiting from improved fundamentals in the industrial sector. Uh, demand uh, is, there's some confidence. Uh, let's see, cost savings. And uh, they're ramping up production schedules. Okay, so um, that all looks pretty good. And if that's true, these earnings growth rate estimates are too low. So. This looks pretty good, Lincoln Electric. Uh, finally, a quick um, compare and contrast. This was an issue where they had some of the big investment banks. And when you look at the brands in investment banking and capital management, you got to look at Goldman Sachs, which has been much uh, badly maligned in the press of late, and Morgan Stanley, which managed to dodge some of the bad press, but, you know, all these bankers are lumped in. And I may or may not have worked at either of these firms. I don't want to disclose what I may or may not know personally, but I just say these are great companies. And so uh, when you get in a period where, you know, people um, think that they might not be great companies, it's a good time to buy them. And so Goldman Sachs trades at 7.9 times earnings, Morgan Stanley, 8.7. Undoubtedly, some of the reason is is that um, this financial bill is going to take away some of their ability to mint money in the derivatives business. But I would suggest that if they have to take capital out of those derivatives businesses, um, it will. it's not like they don't get the capital. It's just they've got to find something else to do with the capital. And Wall Street, if you've got a brand, it's remember most a lot of this is Goldman Sachs as a principal or Morgan Stanley as a principal. But most of this is other people's money, money and capital looking for a place to invest. And these guys are conduits. So all you really have to do is think that the world will continue to get richer, and that these brands will continue to uh, you know receive their market share, their appropriate market share of those flows and you know I don't see anyone getting ahead of these guys you know the whole industry may be beat up but again you know business lasts a long time if you just stay in the game um, there'll be good times and bad I think these guys franchises are intact and they're just a little bit beat up right now because of the current environment so uh, at discounts to book I'm interested in both of them and I'm going to say I don't know much about them. Well, I mean, that's not exactly true. But in terms of what's going to drive earnings, other than I'd say it's a big river 
uh, they are have all have lines in the river and uh, and it becomes about attracting talent um, clearly the uh, you know the good news recently I think is other than having to divest the derivatives business you know you don't have the Pazar coming in telling people what they can make and the reason that would be bad for these companies is simply that the most talented people who don't want caps on their income would start going other places and just as a wacky aside I just I should have put this in the rant section but I noticed that um, the UK is about to unwind their national health system um, it turns out that the government ownership of that system which has been going on since 1948 they've decided isn't working and people aren't getting the care they need so they're unwinding it it's just wacky timing so I'd say in the case the analogy would simply be in the case of Goldman and Morgan Stanley um, you know if you have concerns that um, these guys are gonna get to be wards of the state and the talent won't be attracted to these companies um, you know all you have to do is look at England as give yourselves a reason not to wreck these companies because um, we, we now have another shining example of a long experiment um, with government ownership of a key industry and they've thrown in the towel so let's not start with the with the banks certainly um, it's in the public interest to protect that part of the bank that loans to Main Street but you've got to let capital um, find a home and you got to have conduits to that filled with experts that are allowed to sometimes be wrong you know this isn't physics and determining the outcome of an investment isn't like calculating gravity um, or magnetic forces so um, I think some of these policymakers will understand that over time and so uh, I like these stocks because I think it's a time to you know to take advantage of the sort of lack of uh, appreciation for the long-term staying power of these franchises. The reason I would choose, um, and they're very similar, Goldman and Morgan Stanley you could probably own both. The reason I would lean toward Morgan Stanley versus Goldman um, is simply because they've got a more diversified revenue base. Um, Goldman Sachs is 40% principal transactions and 40% interest income, which I like the 40% interest income depending on what that is um, but the 40% principal transactions suggest to me that that can be a volatile number Morgan Stanley is 15% commissions versus Goldman Sachs is 8 I think that's more stable they've got maybe a better built-out wealth management business relative to their total um, only 28% principal transactions which again might suggest to me lower risk uh, fifteen percent investment banking versus eleven percent at Goldman I like a higher number there because again companies are going public you just want to get your market share in there and uh, and so uh, you know I think that the, the more you can have there versus principal transactions the better and then um, other is twenty two percent at Morgan Stanley nil at uh, Goldman. Now, one thing I don't understand, because it doesn't seem to be in these numbers, is that in the fine print here by value line, they tell you that Morgan Stanley is managing $266 billion in assets, and per share, I don't even know I can do the math, they have a billion seven shares. 
let's just pretend that's 2 billion shares. So they'd have $133 in managed assets per share. Let's say it's a half of a percent of a fee. That would be 65 cents. Um, and so uh, stock at 25, I might be able to say that's worth 10 or 15. So that might be seven bucks or so out of a $25 price in Morgan Stanley or a third of the price that doesn't seem to be exactly in their revenue split, but it must be somewhere in there. But I think that's very stable uh, income, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. At Goldman, they say they've managed uh, $871 billion. They've got far fewer shares, so $538 million. Let's call that half a billion just to make this easy. So uh, $871 billion divided by half a billion. I don't know if I can even do the math on that. Is that uh, 1000 700 or something assets per share, I think so. Let's say it's also half a point. So a billion, or let's say 1,700. So one point would be 17, half a point. Let's just do the easy thing, eight. And that might be worth 10 times, that's 80. So at Goldman, that would actually represent more than half the stock price, 80 over 140. Whereas Morgan Stanley, it would represent a third in the asset management business. Hmm, that's certainly interesting. Um, you know, I was kind of going to go with Morgan Stanley, but this calculation I just did is, is interesting to me. Um, capital structure, you know, it's hard to tell debt to cap at one of these guys because a lot of their debt is really just investment in something and it could be for clients you know as principal or I you know I don't know I don't always understand exactly I think most of the assets they're managing on the asset management side are not on their balance sheet um, but uh, I'm not sure where they would be showing the fee income on those assets they're managing so in the case of Goldman the 800 billion where is it showing up here I don't know I, I really don't but uh, I'm going to go with, uh, I guess I'm going to switch to Goldman Sachs GS, and I don't know the page number. So that's our show this week, everyone. Sorry if it got a little slow at the end. I was comparing and contrasting. Sometimes that can be an exciting, fun part of the show, or it could be a sleepy, dull part of the show. I'm not sure which it was this week. But anyway, I'm going to go with Goldman Sachs uh, between those two. So best idea this week. Hmm, I think I'm going to have to say it's really tough because Goldman Sachs is so cheap. So, uh, but I'm going to say ITT Corp, ticker ITT. Um, this has been the Value Line Observer, the week of July 23rd, 2010. Send me an email, val at com, if you'd like. I try to get to everyone um, within a couple of days. And thanks for listening, and everybody, see you next week. Bye-bye.